G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit brace device. We are really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return, but it would be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or iTunes and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, and uh, we actually sort of have, have a, another review <coughs> from uh, Flo Wooden that said, I only wish I had found these podcasts sooner. We'll be recommending it to all my peers in practice, as it's such a useful and interesting resource. Thank you very much for, for that uh, for that flow. So today we're joined uh, back in the studio for the for the first time this year. I got I got Brian actually on the on the whistles and flavors, so at least it'll make us sound pretty good. And Dr. Tom Cardi is joining us, one of our wonderful lecturers in neurology and neurosurgery here at the RVCs. Thank you very much, Tom, for letting me crowbar you back into the studio again. Pleasure to be here. Very good. Um, so, Tom, I thought uh, we'd uh, we'd start off by asking like a few um, uh, well, a few things that you get commonly asked as a, as one of our neurologists here at the RBC. But uh, but the first thing is, what what is this uh, sort of neurophobia that uh, that people sort of go on about about uh, students and 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 vets in practice and maybe even um, doctors and, and medical practitioners having a issue with all things neurological. Yep. So I know I know we're going to talk about um, common topics that people give us a call for, uh, and I strongly believe that many of the reasons that they phone us are because of this underlying neurophobia. Now, neurophobia is an official term. It's a medical term, and it's um, essentially defined as a fear of the neurosciences or neurology. Um, it was defined in 1994, um, originally in medical students, um, but has now been characterised in countries all over the globe and is described as a pandemic amongst medical students. It sounds quite severe. So this wasn't from the uh, the, the British Medical Journal's Easter or Christmas edition with those nope. sort of, um, this is, amusing articles? If you do a, a PubMed search, you will be at, up at at least 120 articles on this topic before you stop scrolling. And it's now crept its way into veterinary medicine as well. And the reason that, that medical and veterinary students develop neurophobia is because they, well, there's a number of reasons. Firstly, that they feel there's a large amount of neuroanatomy and neurosciences to learn. Secondly, they believe that the subject is extremely complex. And thirdly, people seem to find it incredibly challenging to integrate this basic sciences knowledge with what they find in the clinics. The end result of this is that um, new grads, students and indeed experienced vets are finding it difficult to come up with differential diagnoses for neurological conditions. That's, that sounds uh, pretty pretty solid. Um, I was I was just trying to have a have a look on PubMed uh, about the uh, about the articles. Has anything been written in the in the veterinary literature about this? Yes, there's bits and bobs. Um, I think uh, one of the one of the last articles written um, was um, by Emma Davies, who was originally a clinician here down in I think in 2012. But the topic's also been incorporated into some of the articles that um, Professor May has written on clinical reasoning amongst veterinary students. Um, and, and the way that that creeps across to that field is because if you suffer from neurophobia and you're finding it challenging to um, reach a diagnosis with your cases, you tend to resort to, to sort of one of four major strategies. 
One is that you will use pattern recognition to try and reach a diagnosis, which is fantastic if you've got a common disease um, with very specific clinical signs that's amenable to, to sort of um, a limited list of differential diagnoses, and you see this case pretty often. And experienced clinicians are great at pattern recognition because they have obviously a great uh, large um, experiential database to pull from. If you're not so experienced, it becomes a bit more difficult because a lot of conditions don't have uh, specific presenting clinical signs and consequently you have nothing to draw on. You have no experience, comparator um, to draw on to reach your, your sort of diagnosis. So that's one way that people get themselves out of a fix. Another way is with phishing, which we see time and time again, and I, I hate to say I think I may have done in, in my younger days, which is where you throw a barrage of diagnostic tests at your issue and hope you're going to um, strike it lucky and reach a diagnosis. Difficulty is diagnostic tests are expensive, they're time-consuming, they're often not very sensitive and not very specific, and a whole raft of, of diseases, particularly neurological diseases, will, e will either give you no abnormalities or the same abnormalities. So again, you're no, you're no further down the sort of diagnostic pathway there. Another thing that we're finding um, is getting more common now. Um, many veterinary centres have access, certainly CT, and some now have access to MRI. And we're finding more and more often on a weekly basis that people are following a sort of just scan approach. Um, so they'll have a neurological case, and there'll clearly be something wrong with its gait or its behaviour, and it gets thrown in the scanner. Now these um, imaging modalities are, are hugely sensitive, so it's highly likely that you're going to find something abnormal. The difficulty then becomes, how do you relate that abnormality back to your clinical presentation and therefore use that to, to draw up a list of differentials? So these three approaches, pattern recognition, phishing, and the just scan approach, all have their advantages, but mostly they have some disadvantages for an inexperienced clinician. Because you really want to use your diagnostic imaging to uh, agree with what you're what you're finding on your clinical assessment, and particularly with yep. neurology. And I believe our, our esteemed uh, colleague and friend uh, Patrick Kenny told me about the I think the first MRI that didn't, was an EMI involved with the creation of the of the first uh, MRI, and actually they they saw this sort of lesion in someone's brain and said, "Yep, that's where we thought it was going to be," because of obviously neuroanatomical localization yeah. and people being very good at, at a neurological exam to highlight the areas that are going to cause a problem. So, so it, it you know, I suppose with more um, tests that are available to us, like phishing is, um, you know, I suppose a more expensive way to to try and do these things. But they've got to marry up with your with your clinical signs. Yep. And if you find that lesion, um, in the majority of cases, it's a hyper-intense focal lesion, which looks the same, you know, across different diseases. Um, a neoplastic disease, an inflammatory disease, a vascular disease, a traumatic disease can all look similar on an MRI. But unless you have taken the, 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 the steps of going through a clinical reasoning process, as in... Um, you know, you need to define the problem, um, define the system, define the location, and then define where the lesion is, you're still going to be none the wiser. 
And I strongly believe that you can almost put all your MRI and your diagnostic testing in the bin. And actually, if you take a good history, do a good physical exam, a good neurological exam, you'll get far more out of your, you know, your patient um, than you would than by just scanning it. I've thought about this and, and discussed it with uh, with a couple of other people about that sort of define refine um, issue that I know that what we what we teach here and the the Madison Church Volk uh, uh, approach I, I suppose um, maybe actually it goes further deeper than that and AJ AGJ Watson back in uh, the University of Sydney as well but but uh, that that sort of idea I think the problem is that certain people who are um, less experienced like it is a bit of an arduous thing but also you need to um, have some knowledge about potential differentials like it has to fit with the clinical science of the patient but I also think that what we do like if you combine the um, thinking fast and thinking slow approach is that what I think that you do although you go through that process you just go through it a lot faster and I think it's very difficult for people to see you going through all those all those sort of steps um because you 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 do go through them yep but you just go through them a lot faster because you can base that on um all those all those factors that you're ticking off in your head but i think that's i think that's the key one of the key points i guess my job and our job in the the final year of vet school and indeed with our new graduates is not to teach them lists of differential diagnoses or anatomical pathways it's to teach them to to reason clinically and it's also to teach them that this approach is logical systematic and actually by practicing it you'll be a far better clinician than if you try and skip through it and just go to the page of the textbook that lists the 57 differential diagnoses you don't need that textbook what you need is a systematic approach it's uh, do you play golf Oh, no, no, but the, the rules of golf are very complicated. That surprises me, Dom. You look like a golfer. You <laughs> look like the chap with a sensible sweater. But uh, the, I guess the analogy is if you play golf, you just don't come running up to the tee and start swiping at the ball. You place your feet, you get your shoulders right, you get your grip right, you angle your club properly, you strike through the ball. There's so many sequential steps. And unless you've practiced those, uh, repeated them and reinforced them, you're not going to do them properly. It's the same with overcoming your neurophobia. If you're going to overcome it, you need to ease yourself almost through that pain barrier by practicing a solid approach to these cases. So people are going to listen to this podcast and then going to start to take up golf and think that's going to help with their neuro. I mean, I would thoroughly advise I don't play golf myself, but I can't see how four hours wandering around in the countryside wouldn't be better than diagnosing neurological cases. <laughs> point taken. Point taken. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll move on, sir, because otherwise we'll, uh, we'll we'll digress to some sort of um, Monty Python esque uh, uh, scenario. But anyway, um, so so thinking about asking, uh, so if a few of the common things that that people ask you about, and I suppose one of the questions that that I have is uh, from um, reading recently in the literature about the use of intranasal midazolam for uh, seizuring dogs. Like, I just wonder your uh, your thoughts on that, sir. That's a very technical and tough question, which is going to cause me to, to have to delve back into the literature. Um, so let's take a step back. So, I mean, we know that midazolam is a, is a benzodiazepine, and we know that by benzodiazepines acting through the gabagated chloride channel, they have the ability to certainly um, lessen the severity of seizures, and in the best case, they'll stop seizures. 
Now, the, the benzodiazepines we tend to use um, in this country are most often diazepam, which we can give intravenously, uh, rectally, or intramuscularly. Um, more recently, we're starting to use midazolam, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about. And also in the States, they tend to use, I think, lorazepam as well. And all of these are kind of indicated um, to as a first-line treatment for, for an actively seizuring animal. And that could be an animal having a single generalised seizure, a focal seizure, or an animal in status epilepticus. All of them are very effective. Now, for many years, we've relied on diazepam, either per rectum um, or intravenously, to try and stop seizures. And it's a it's a great drug in over half of the patients it will stop or reduce their seizure severity i guess the slight issue is are that its pharmacokinetics are a little bit slower um, than some of the other benzodiazepines particularly midazolam now there was a uh, was it 2017 you you know yeah. that you've got the, probably got the yeah. paper up 2017 there was a um a randomized placebo controlled trial looking at um intranasal uh, midazolam versus rectal diazepam now before people get too excited about this it's very important to understand that that the origins for this trial were from human medicine uh, human patients with seizures are provided with um, um, intranasal midazolam, which is actually administered via a sort of um, aspirator. So the, a normal syringe containing the um, drug has a sort of tip or, or addition on the tip, um, and that creates an aerosol of midazolam, which spreads itself over the nasal mucosa, meaning that there's very rapid and effective absorption of that drug. Imagine it's sort of similar to the diffusers they use for their Kennelkoff intranasal vaccines. Yeah, you're bringing back nightmares of first opinion <laughs> practice and trying to spray a Kennelkoff vaccine randomly at some sort of pug. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think there's a case report of actually someone infecting a child uh, by it's that. Right? with Kennelkoff vaccine. <laughs> I used to dread those consults. That and kitten vaccinations were my worst. Anyway, we digress. So they did this study looking at the per rectum um, administration of, of um, diazepam. Um, with the regular sort of ampules that we use versus um, the midazolam. And they actually got some quite remarkable um, data from it. They were looking at a population that was in status epilepticus, so a very unique presentation. And let's just remind ourselves that status epilepticus is either um, two seizures within five... Uh, sorry, excuse me, two seizures without returning to, to normal between or a seizure that lasts for more than five minutes. So two seizures within the day? Yeah, or a short time period where you don't return to, to normal. I think if you had two seizures within a day and you return to normal in between, you tend to think of those as a cluster seizure, whereas status epilepticus is a very sort of um, well-defined presentation, um, and it's actually an emergency presentation. It's potentially life-threatening because of the the neural damage it can cause. So anyway, they gave half of these dogs um, intranasal midazolam, half of them rectal diazepam, and the results were quite startling. They found that, I think, 20% of the guys with diazepam, uh, it stopped their status epilepticus, and 70% 
Um, is that right? That's correct. I'm yeah. pleased with that. Seventy <laughs> percent um, um, were stocked with intranasal midazolam. So, so fourteen out of twenty dogs. Yeah, which is which is a, a, a statistically significant difference, and actually hugely encouraging for the use of intranasal midazolam. Now we have now got. My understanding is some of these ampules uh, and aerosol kits. Um, in the hospital, and we've certainly had them in wards in our, in, you know, in the neuro ward. I have no idea um, if we've actually used them or not, or how effective they've been. But there's no reason why, if you have that drug in your practice, you can't use that as a first line treatment for a dog having a seizure. I suppose it seems sort of a bit more beneficial in the case rather than getting an IV access, uh, and that that you you're definitely going to administer something that's going to have an effect rather than potentially um, rectal diazepam that might work in, in one out of five before you get that IV access. At least it might give you time to get that IV access and administer yeah, it I, I, more effectively. I think this comes back to um, seizure treatment in general practice. I think if you have a dog which is actively seizuring in your consult room or in your emergency room, it's actually quite a, a, a shocking and daunting prospect. And as well as trying to achieve some level of systemic stabilisation, your first goal, without a doubt, is to stop the seizure. And that means getting a benzodiazepine into that dog. And as you say, um, it could be intramuscularly, it could be intravenously, but if you're stressed yourself, the dog's still experiencing some sort of you know, motor dysfunction, tonic-clonic movements, um, or there's not someone there to assist you, getting IV access is challenging, so you have to look for other ro- routes. There's nothing wrong with applying diazepam per rectum, but if you can grab that muzzle, use the aspirator, and, and, and effectively apply... Um, intranasal midazolam it's a great alternative it works quickly it works effectively and it may become the new standard of care I suppose that just as a, a practical point, and we don't necessarily to dwell on this a bit further, but but at least the per rectum route is not a, a route that has teeth that might be sort of thrashing around a, a bit. So I suppose that, that that's another consideration, and probably you know the, the effectiveness is one, but also you don't want to be put in harm's way when yep. when you're administering these medications. No, I completely agree. And 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 remember, it's not just intranasal or per rectum. Per rectum has its own disadvantages in a lot long-haired dog that's moving around. Uh, Equally, many dogs have autonomic signs um, when they're seizuring. So very often, you're trying to put a a rec tube in and the dog's trying to push other bits and bobs out. So it it does become a bit of a conflict. You can still give um, your benzodiazepine intramuscularly if you need to. And that may at least provide some uh, anti-seizure activity and skeletal muscle relaxation which gives you the time um, to get your catheter in whichever route you choose whichever route you're comfortable with the primary goal is to stop the seizure so uh, so maybe we, we should uh, move on from our intranasal midazolam so it's a speech that if you if you thought a patient has seizured uh, enough so whether that's a cluster or uh, an appropriate number within a certain time period um, that you think that that necessitates that that animal um, goes on a anti-epileptic drug Dom, 
the phrase seizures enough. How many seizures are enough? Well, um, I guess well, let's. We, 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 I think we, we might have, uh, we might have discussed uh, that previously. Okay, so I let's think. let's go through it once more because it is important, <laughs> and I keep trying to hammer these points home. So, according to the BMC 2015 guidelines, which were generated by a panel of um, experts in in canine and feline epilepsy, including the lovely Professor Volk, we know that we should be prescribing an anti-epileptic if the dog has two or more seizures in six months, if the seizure frequency is increasing, if the severity is increasing, if they're having um, status epilepticus or cluster seizures, or if the, the, the dog's uh, postictal signs are, are worsening. So, for example, if the dog is markedly aggressive after seizures, it's putting your family or child at risk. Um, all of these are good reasons to start uh, an anti-seizure medication. Very good. So when you're starting an anti-seizure medication, so we, we, we don't just change the, the diet? No. <laughs> you, we can talk about diet in a minute. But a diet is part of a holistic approach um, to seizure management. Good. I'm glad we. I'm glad we got that in. So, um, so do, do you have a a, a first line anti-epileptic or one that um, that we we maybe should go to potentially? Yeah. The. Um, I mean, if we follow the, the letter of the law, we're, uh, what we can prescribe is, is very much governed by the, the cascade. So what is licensed and approved in the UK, we know that we have potassium bromide, we've got phenobarbital, and we've got Pexian licensed for first-line use in, in seizures. And by seizures, I mean dogs with idiopathic epilepsy, where, according to the licensing terms, other causes have been excluded, okay? Each of those has pros and cons. Um, so for, uh, do you want me to go through these? No, 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 I don't, I don't want you to go through okay. them. I suppose each of them has pros and each cons. Each of them has pros and cons would be, be very good. So, so you, um, is, is there a, um, an inappropriate use of, of one or the other or how do you, how yeah, do you make a decision is. between those so so for me and probably for most of the other specialists in neurology if we're looking to treat an idiopathic epileptic dog our first line choices will either be pexian which is imipitoin or phenobarbital in theory both of them um, have the potential to reduce seizure frequency by 50 percent i think anecdotally um, you are likely to get more success with phenobarb. But it's very important to, to prescribe not only according to the um, guidelines, but also according on a, you know, to a case-by-case basis. So, for example, if I have a two-year-old Labrador, which we think has idiopathic epilepsy and has had two seizures in... in um, six months, then it may be that I try with Pexian, which has no side of minimal side effects, doesn't need monitoring, uh, and actually is a fairly sort of innocuous drug to take. Um, I can prescribe that for perhaps a few months, monitor the dog's response, um, and see, see how we're doing. That would be in contrast to the same two-year-old Border Collie, which is a breed predisposed to seizures, very often get refractory seizures, 
and that dog perhaps is seizuring once or twice a month, in that situation it may be that I use phenobarb because I know not only from the literature but also from experience that that is likely to provide me with a greater level of seizure control. So can I ask, do we monitor the antieleptic drugs that you um, have mentioned the, the same way? Do we take blood levels the, the same way from all these anti-epileptic drugs? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so with Pexian, no. The dose range is 10 to 30 milligrams per kilo twice daily. Um, many people start at 10 milligrams per kilo. I would certainly advocate, based on experience, that you go for a mid-dose range, 20 mg per kilo, and increase um, to 30 which is the maximum if you're not getting a reduction in seizure frequency. That particular drug um, has no requirements for serum monitoring okay, which is often attractive to some clients because they don't want routine um, blood sticks. It also has minimal effect on, on kidneys and liver um, and therefore they consider it potentially an attractive option because of its low side effect profile. So does that mean you, you can't measure imipotin levels in the blood or there are labs that will do that but we, we're not quite sure the levels that you need to attain to be seizure free? I guess you can measure any drug in the blood but in this particular setting we don't need to uh, uh, kind of achieve a target um, because of the drug's pharmacokinetics, we don't need to be maintaining it at a um, certain sort of serum level. Now, you contrast that to um, phenobarb, which has a very different route of metabolism and very different pharmacokinetics and a long half-life. In that particular case, you need serum monitoring. You have to be achieving a target serum level in order for that drug to be um, therapeutic. Now, you will typically do this by, by taking a blood sample and sending it off to a lab such as Axiom or IDEX, and they will return your serum concentration. The serum concentration range that they will report is very often sort of 14 or 15 micrograms per mil all the way up to 40. And that was quite a wide It's uh, a range. wide range. And the difficulty with that range, uh, which is based on studies from dogs, I think, in 2001 just a load of dogs dosed with phenobarm, is that at the bottom of that range, your drug is not effective, so you're not achieving seizure control. You're essentially dosing your, your, your dog with a drug which can cause some side effects, but you're not getting the benefit from it. In contrast, at the top of that dose range, anything above 35 micrograms per mil will be causing side effects, it will be causing toxicity, and there is no doubt that you will see changes in your uh, liver function. So do you guys, I, I suppose there are two things about this, do you guys aim for a certain concentration level if an animal is still actively seizing, obviously a dog, and the second thing is, like, when do you actually measure these levels in time for when you dose them? So do you, do you measure before a dose or do you measure um, six hours into a, a, a dose? So at the, um, I suppose, the, the, the maximum effect potentially? Right, okay. So the, remember that dose range is probably 15 to 40 micrograms per mil. I would strongly encourage every vet out there treating an idiopathic epileptic 
um, to at least try and achieve um, serum levels of 25 micrograms per mil before they think about adding in other anti-epileptics, changing anti-epileptics. We look to try and get these dogs in at least the sort of 25 to 30 window. And if they're in there, then we consider a ourselves to be doing a good job in terms of um, giving them the best chance of, of treating their seizures. Now your question about when to monitor is, a, is an interesting one and there's a lot of studies published on this. The pharmacokinetics um, of phenobarbital are such that its serum levels should remain pretty steady if you're using it at routine concentrations. So for example two to three milligrams per kilo twice daily. You shouldn't get too much fluctuation um, during the day. However, if you start to use high concentrations, something approaching, you know, between 6 and 10 uh, my, uh, milligrams per kilo, then you will see fluctuations with dosing. And you need to make sure, and this is just my recommendation, that you try and take your serum level just before the next pill is due. And that logically makes sense because if you think about the metabolism, in theory, that's when the serum levels should be at their lowest. That's when you know you have your worst case scenario and that's what you can use to modify your, your um, tablet levels. And do you use a, a plain tube or a uh, Always a, a plain tube, tube, Dom. Always a plain tube. You know that. Because if you put the, your um, serum in a serum tube, that phenobarb gets sucked into the gel um, down at the bottom and you will get very, very wacky results. So con conversely, so if, you, if you're, say, you routinely measure um, a, what, what you think is an idiopathic an, a, uh, epileptic dog that has been on phenobarbitone for, say, a year and you measure a level that is, say, 15 micrograms per, per mil, should you think about stopping the phenobarbitone if it hasn't seized within that year? So you know if you were a student, I'd turn that question back to you. <laughs> but you're not a student, so I'll answer it. <laughs> so it depends very much on a case-by-case on a -case basis, <clears throat> doesn't it? As, as Patrick Kenny, uh, our friend and mentor, used to say, you treat the dog, not the serum levels so common sense dictates that okay let's let's say i've been treating this dog with phenobarbital it initially was having two seizures a month uh, i started its treatment and it's now having no seizures in a year um i must be doing something therapeutically therapeutically effective so it's kind of as long as those serum levels aren't toxic um it almost doesn't matter what they are they are for that particular patient therapeutically effective the one thing i would say is that just because your dog has been seizure free um, for that length of time don't stop therapy um, we have so many vets and so many owners who because their dogs have been seizure free they stop their therapy and then they experience these terrible rebound seizures which are much more difficult to control Let's take another case. So the same dog, but this guy is still seizuring um, and we measure his serum levels and they come back at 15 micrograms per mil, the lower end of the dose range. We absolutely need to increase them. It's a, it's a no-brainer. There is a formula um, on the, any website, any neuro textbook, which shows you how to increase the amount of phenobar that you're giving. <clears throat> and then once you've increased the dose, reassess 10 to 14 days later. Okay? So each case is individual. 
I like that. That's good. That's uh, um, answered uh, most of my questions. I, I suppose that the, why, when you stop phenobarbitone, does it cause these uh, um, seizures to happen? That are you serious? Yeah, we're getting to the <laughs> neurophysiology of seizures. Yeah, I just, I just, I, I, I've, I've wondered this. I, maybe, uh, maybe it's for my own benefit. Right, it's the, so I wish I had a a, um, a board in my days. We call them uh, chalk, chalk boards. boards yeah. um, I don't think such things exist these days. But every every dog with epilepsy, their brain has a seizure threshold. And that threshold is determined by a whole raft of things, neurotransmitters, uh, electrolytes, ionic charges, um, drug transporters, drug receptors, neuronal plasticity. There's wonderful, wonderful studies, particularly in human medicine, looking at, uh, at what determines this seizure threshold. But for your and I's simple mind, we basically need to think of it as a balance between excitation and inhibition. In a dog which has been on levels of phenobarb uh, and has achieved seizure freedom, it's hypothesized that whatever we're giving is, is allowing that dog to have just enough inhibition in its brain to be below its seizure thresh threshold, its trigger point, if you like. And as soon as we take that, um, take that uh, phenobarb away, um, the seizure threshold is breached and the dog starts the seizure. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. Now, another... Now I didn't think you needed a chalkboard for that. that, that well, in my mind, I did. Now, now, it's not just drugs that can change that seizure threshold. It could be dietary um, components. It could be environmental stimuli. It could be stress, excitement, light, um, another neuropathology, such as a tumour, um, a stroke, or an infection, or an inflammation, that seizure threshold is a movable target that's resting um, not only in the dog's brain, but actually as we all sit here, Brian doesn't know it yet because he's got his earphones in, but he has a seizure threshold too. You have one, and I have one. And at the minute, hopefully, we're all in balance. We hope. We hope. That's uh, that's fantastic, Tom. That's uh, very uh, very well explained. Um, could I um, finally sort of? I'm uh, getting ask tired you, now, Tom. I, I, I'm, I, can I'm getting tell. tired. I can tell. <laughs> I'll pop you up with a bit of. I feel like one of those cross-country skiers in the Winter Olympics. <laughs> very topical. Yeah. Very topical. Going uphill. Um, so, you, with, with regards to uh, um, calls that you might get about how to manage um, patients that are, have presumed sort of spinal pain. Um, rather than the whole management process that you would you would kindly uh, um, assist people with, I suppose my my question would be: What um, analgesia do you think is a, a good place to start, and when do you need to make a decision to actually um, not just speak to us or your local referral centre, but actually send the patient to somewhere to 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 manage them? So when do you get concerned? Thomas, this is a complete curveball. I now have to readjust my mind, think of not seizures, now spinal pain. But you're, you're a professional, and I know you can okay. deal with this. Let's, so let's do an about turn. I, I'm, always, I'm always a bit wary about calls I get, and we get a lot of calls about dogs with spinal pain. Um, and, I, and I guess I'll talk through these systematically. The first thing to ask yourself, is this dog genuinely suffering from spinal pain? 
Um, people have different palpation techniques of, for the spine and also for the rest of the body. I tend to be quite gentle. I don't know if you've seen Holger Volk ever He's palpate very a dog. powerful hands. He's got strong hands, powerful fingers. Um, and I, I sometimes wonder if, if more of his dogs will be painful than of my dogs. The other thing you'll note is that, that some people, when they palpate for spinal pain, they're very often gripping under the belly or around the belly or in the cranial abdomen. And so I think it's very important to, to really be sure in your mind, is your dog suffering from abdominal pain? Uh, either cranial abdominal pain as a result of a, a mass or a pancreatitis or for example caudal abdominal pain um, we've seen many animals with UTIs or bladder pathology that have presented as being um, painful so you need to make sure you rule that out first if you truly believe that your animal has spinal pain you need to also have a little think about is that diffuse spinal pain or is it focal spinal pain? And I know you're looking at me quizzically here. You're like, pain is pain, Tom. But, but pain is definitely not pain. And let me explain why. If I have diffuse spinal pain in a young dog that's been a bit off its food, it's pyrexic, it's looked a bit miserable for the last couple of days, uh, SRMA or something like that is very high on my list of differential diagnoses. And that's a dog that perhaps I can't just analgese, I need to analgese and refer. Steroid responsive. Steroid responsive, meningitis and arteritis. Sorry about the um, acronyms. Um, conversely, if I have a eight-year-old Labrador, um, which has been out for a walk, jumped a fence, and has some focal spinal pain, um, potentially as a result of a disc protrusion or something like that, or a nerve root compression, that's something that potentially I can manage, you know, effectively at home with analgesia. So let's say we've got one of those cases. We have a little dog with focal spinal pain. Perhaps our differential diagnoses are, are indeed disc disease. Um, in, that, in that very unique setting, the analgesics that I would always consider are firstly a non-steroidal. You need to make sure there's no contraindications, be those gastrointestinal or, or renal dose appropriately, but a non-steroidal such as your carbofen or your meloxicam um, has amazing um, analgesic properties. I mean, you know that if we look at the vertebral column, pretty much every structure, bones, ligaments, meninges, synovial joints, uh, intervertebral disc, nerve roots, everything apart from the spinal cord itself contains rafts of nociceptors. And NSAIDs work very effectively at dampening down the signal from, from focal pain in that area. The other analgesic that I would almost consider part of my sort of minimum for multimodal analgesia is um, also gabapentin. Um, it's very good at treating neuropathic pain. The dose range for that drug, and many people forget this, is between 10 and 60 milligrams per kilo total dose per day. That's, that's an enormous range. It's an enormous range and it's quite confusing to use. As a rule of thumb, we would give 10 milligrams per kilo every eight hours. You're not going to see as rapid effects of that analgesic as uh, a, a non-steroidal. It's going to take about three days to have some effect, maximum effect somewhere between three and 10 days, but it is going to prove to be effective 
at treating a neuropathic pain. So those are the two I would use, um, non-steroidal and gabapentin. But I would always, always, always urge the vet to ask themselves, what is the likely cause of this spinal pain? Because a dog that has been walloped by a car and potentially has a spinal fracture, it's not appropriate to just treat it with analgesia without performing some um, other diagnostics. Okay. And and when should people be concerned as in to upscale or or um or or say I suppose I suppose if you if you think you need help you always need help, right? But but are there things that you get more concerned about like when you when you're speaking to people? The three Ps, Dom, the three Ps. Not a late sixties soul band. No. Uh, the three Ps. So pain. Is your dog uh, becoming more painful uh, or is it intractable to the normal analgesics that we would provide, such as a non-steroidal? Progression, so is your dog's um, condition worsening? So, for example, has it progressed from a spinal pain now to an ataxia or perhaps a paresis? Are we seeing signs of a myelopathy developing that absolutely make us more worried? And then the third P, um, is is paralysis um, and actually I'll break that down into paresis or plesia if your dog begins to lose function to the point that it's not able to walk properly um, then you absolutely need to be seeing us it's also important to understand that just giving analgesia in the case of a, a dog with a neurological condition on its own is not good enough if I've suffered a, a, a protruding disc that's pressing on my sciatic nerve, yes, the doctor's going to give me some analgesia. Um, they're also going to tell me to rest. Uh, no more swimming, no more Joe Wicks HIIT workouts. Um, it's going to be either on the sofa or in the bed. Um, and that would be for a prolonged period of time. It's not good enough to rest overnight or for one week. You need two to four weeks of rest um, to make sure that your um, medical treatment is effective. That's that's uh, that's sound advice. Do, do you, what, do, as 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 obviously as obviously expected. Well, Tom, I, I think um, I think we should we should wrap it up there because I see you're you're fading. You know, you haven't had your afternoon nap yet, so uh, <laughs> so I'm a bit concerned about uh, about things in general. But I was 45 this week. Well, this week. Yeah. Happy birthday. This feels great. Feels like a new lease of life. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's awesome. Well, well, um, you know, midway through the forties. I suppose the only depressing fact about that is for both of us, the next celebratory birthday is our fiftieth, which is a bit concerning. But anyway, um, so uh, um, but thank you very much, Tom, for your uh, for your for your words and wisdom and your uh, incredible way of explaining things. It does pleasure um, as always. It's very good, and and uh, one day maybe we'll we'll actually get a um, a chalkboard here or something. So maybe we could even create a, like a video cast thing with your uh, with your your doodling skills. Yep. Um, or we be... can do some slides in the background, and I can talk over them. Oh, look at that! I that have be... all sorts prepared. <laughs> You're just a man of many talents. Ready to go. Ready to go, indeed. So we'll wrap it up there. Many 
many thanks for your your time today tom um and thanks you thank you to all for listening so don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast tell your friends tell your vet friends that would be great and if you could leave us a five-star review on apple Podcasts, that would be fantastic so we'll play some show notes on the rvc pages so if you just type in rvc clinical podcast into your search engine it should be the top of the tree if you just type in rvc podcast you might actually find there's a research one as well that we uh, that we sort of uh, began again um at the end of end of last year so uh, so so maybe check that out too um so if you have any comments suggestions for this podcast then please get in touch you can either email me dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or you can tweet at dom barfield until next time bye bye